morning, friends. Uh, if you're in your Blue Bible, it's going to be page 930. I'll save you a little bit of time turning there. All right. Parable of the Sower, chapter 4, verses 1 through 20 in Mark. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into the boat and sat in, in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain." And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, "He, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that... They may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word immediately, receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfaithful or unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Chris. You may be seated. I hope you will keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 4. We're going to refer to this as we usually do um, throughout our service. Before we do, I want to highlight a couple things. So we... Um, this last week, we've been kind of hard at work and making sh- sure that we want to put our mission and vision as a church, a church that, as Caleb introduced, makes disciples, makes lifelong followers. That's what our job is. We're going to put that in front of us as often as we can because it's something that we all, we all are joining together in. If you belong to this church, we are a team. We are locking arms in this commission And so we want to, again, be very practical about how we make disciples, and we want to uh, put in front of us, again, uh, resources and tools and reminders of how we are specifically making disciples in light of our unique context. And one of the things that we've produced for you is you'll see some shelves that are out here on this back wall called the Next Steps Wall. And on those shelves, you'll find resources that we recommend, usually that correspond to uh, a series that we're teaching through or some of the circumstances that we're facing in our cultural context or cultural moment, as well as some parenting and grandparenting resources for those who are looking to, again, raise disciples in the home, which is what we want to help unleash you for if you're a parent here, is to help you 
raise these little ones to love and follow Jesus. So I encourage you to check out this wall, and if those books look like they would be helpful to you, um, then you'll find a little donation bin, and again, this is just suggested. If you want to, um, uh, again, take that book, it would be helpful to you. We've given you a suggested donation amount, but don't let that limit you, again, if this resource would be particularly helpful for you. Um, Two resources I want to, three actually, I want to highlight that are new this week. One is a book called Listen Up. Um, And this book is just a small little pamphlet, actually, a little booklet that helps all of us understand how do we participate in a worship service? How should we respond to God's word specifically as it's preached? And so I'd encourage you to take that out. We're going to start giving that out in our new membership class um, as a way of helping us understand how, what happens in a church service that's absolutely supernatural and how do we participate in it? And two others actually have to do with the upcoming election. You're not going to find anything from the Republican Party or Democratic Party or Green Party up there. What we want to do is we want to help you make this decision, especially if you are a Christian, as a Christian. And so as you approach this election, we want to help you. One, where's one book? How do I love, though? How do I love church members with different politics? And I think we could say that we've seen some ugliness over this election, sometimes even within the church. How do you love someone with different politics? A little booklet. And the second is called Before You Vote, questions that you should ask before you cast your vote this season. Again, a vote is an act of obedience where we confess we really just have one king, and that's Jesus. And, and even in a vote, that's, we are confessing our loyalty to him. And so if those books would be helpful for you, we encourage you to pick those up today. Um, and again, you're not going to hear me endorse candidates from the pulpit. We have Republicans, Democrats, and those across the political spectrum who are here. The one king we all follow is Jesus. And so... Um, That being said, um, again, we are just glad if you are here for, even if you uh, may not even consider yourself to be Christian, I want you to know that it's it's common for us to have many people who are on in a variety of different places spiritually, a a variety of different places when it comes to their relationship with God. And we, we have the confidence that all of us all of us, whether you're new to church or not, need the hope that Jesus offers. It's why we work so hard to pull all this off every week, is because this hope is something we desperately need. I need it des- desperately, even if some of us are still have some very serious questions and doubts. You see, many of us, we may not respond to that good news the same way. In fact, our passage is all about that. But regardless, we welcome all of you to be here, and we, uh, we all can't help but say that we have been transformed by this good news and we, we know that if you will put your faith in this Savior, he will change your life as well. But I want to ask, why is it that we respond so differently to Jesus? Often in ways that are sometimes impossible to predict on the front end. You know, some of my friends who were once at all in on Christianity at various points, at least at one point in their life, grew up, um, and they were, uh, again, all about Jesus. They read their Bibles. They went on that mission trip to Peru. They even defended Christianity to many of their friends that disagreed. They were all in until at one point they weren't. You know, for some it was a slow drift, and others it was a dramatic U-turn, but Regardless, the the point is that even if they had worn the jersey at one point, they've taken it off a long time ago. And then there are others, uh, friends of mine, that who rolled their eyes at Jesus for most of their life. They were pretty convinced. They they didn't know really why this mattered to them at all, or pretty sure that if Jesus was going to give anyone the time of day, it would not be them. They never really cared what Jesus had to say. Some of them were convinced that Christianity was just foolish backwards, maybe even dangerous. And then strangely, they 
they turned the complete opposite direction. They became the very thing that they had once despised. They became a Christian. And not just a Christian, but a bold Christian. A Christian that was almost annoyingly eager to invite others to follow Jesus with them. You ever met someone who is just fresh as a Christian? It's, it's emboldening and encouraging. But none, nonetheless, you could not predict on the front end where they would have been. Why is it that we respond to Jesus so differently? Why is it that some wither and some thrive? Why is it, again, so impossible to predict? Today, we're going to hear Jesus' answer in Mark chapter 4 as he predicts not only how Jesus will respond to him, but why. And I want us to look at what he has to say, breaking our passage into two parts, those who wither and those who thrive. You ready? So I hope you'll keep your Bibles open. We're going to be looking at the, at the first part, at those who wither. In Mark chapter 4, we're back encountering Jesus, and Jesus, uh, we're forced to encounter Jesus a little bit differently than we have, if you've been following along with us in Mark, and that Jesus now is sitting down to teach a crowd that now seems to have swelled into the thousands, and he's doing so from a boat, sitting um, out on the Sea of Galilee, largely so that he wouldn't be trampled by this massive crowd, and addressing these men, women, and children in parables. And what exactly is a parable? We have something actually close to 60 parables in the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, and Luke, none in the Gospel of John, and these so-called parables, Jesus squeezes some absolutely massive ideas about God and the world that he was bringing, that, that he's going to bring and even now is bringing, absolutely massive ideas into short fictional stories set in the context of everyday life. Fishing, farming, journeys, weddings, parenting. And these, these, were some, these circumstances were ones that everyone could relate to. But it turns out it doesn't mean that parables were always so easy to understand. In fact, parables, it's as if they, are, they, they seem to be designed to knock Jesus' hearers off of their feet, to force his audience to say, huh, I'm not sure I get it. Did, did, you, did you get what he was saying? In fact, what do we find out in this parable? That even his closest followers, Jesus' closest followers, the disciples, they, these inner circle of 12, they pull him aside at the very end of this parable and they say, hey, Jesus, can you, can you like fill us in? We're, we're not exactly sure what you meant in all of this. And what, now again, who, who, who doesn't love a good story? But why would Jesus intentionally teach in such a way that would confuse other people? And seemed almost designed to confuse. What, what could be, well, a better way to explain the purpose of a parable than to tell a parable, which is exactly what Jesus does. It's the purpose of this one, to understand why Jesus teaches in this way, and I want to see if we can summarize it together. You know, it's not, after all, it's not just a lesson about farming, as some of us might be intrigued about. We, instead, it's a story about the gospel, the good news about Jesus, of who Jesus is and what he has done, and the rest of the parable is about the different ways that we respond to that message. And just as a seed would only take root in certain soil— so the gospel would only take root, will only take root in certain hearts. Before we look at the kind of heart in which the word of the gospel thrives, we need to look at the ones and consider the kind of heart in which the gospel would wither. Three ways to wither, in fact. 
And we'll start with the first. The first way to wither is to be snatched by our enemy. Anybody here grow up on a farm? Anybody grew up on a farm or family that farmed? It's very few of us. Okay, some of us do. My, my wife's family, several of them still farm to this day. They come from a family of farmers. But today, farming is far different than it is than it was in the first century. You see, we take things for granted uh, like uh, gas-powered tractors or in industrial irrigation or sometimes specially engineered seed that would keep, aside, keep away pests and produce a guaranteed fruitful crop. Now, I know that steps on the to- toes of the Whole Foods crowd out here, but nonetheless, we take for granted what modern-day farming looks like. There are even some tractors which link to GPS satellites um, in which a farmer can literally sit in the cab and ch- catch up on YouTube videos or his or latest book while his tractor drives for him harvesting the field with just immaculate, incredible precision. What a day to be alive. Not so much in the first century, though, where rocky dirt and scrub vegetation made farming a struggle for even the most experienced person. For this reason, many farmhands would, when they go and cast uh, seed in their field, would cast it absolutely everywhere to any single, every single corner that they could, generously, um, liberally, hoping that somewhere that seed would land in good soil and bear enough fruit, bear enough grain for the family to survive yet another season. And we find that's the case here with this farmhand who's casting out seed liberally, generously, almost wastefully. And we're going to look at the various places that this seed lands, but the first place that it lands is in a footpath in through the field. It lands on hard-packed dirt where very quickly it becomes bird food because it can't, of course, take root at all. And Jesus' point here is that there are some who respond to the gospel and yet immediately dismiss it. They can have a variety of emotional reactions. It could be anger, confusion, ridicule, or indifference. But the final result is the same. It's as if the gospel has simply bounced off. I can't tell you how many times this has happened to me, and I know it's happened to others here. Sometimes, honestly, it's because we have been terribly unclear about what the gospel is, or because we've been so focused on getting all of the gospel out in one attempt, it's, 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 we might as well have vomited all over the other person, and then they leave that conversation thinking to themselves, well, that was really strange. But then there are other times where, so far as I know, I, I just killed it when I was sharing the gospel. I mean, I was brought to tears in how I put it, and yet the other person just doesn't seem to care. Some of us, in fact, who are watching this or here in person, we, we're not entirely sure why we should care. You're, you're glad that this helps someone like me sleep at night, but this whole church thing, you're pretty certain, isn't for you. Friend, if you're, if you're in that kind of place, even if you're in that kind of place, I just want you to know I really am glad that you are here. And I really do hope that that changes. After all, what if Jesus is right? What if the reason that you are so indifferent to the gospel is not because it doesn't pertain to you, or because you are so much more objective or mature than others? What if the reason that you are so indifferent are, is because there are spiritual forces that want to keep you indifferent? Because there are spiritual forces that want to keep you from hearing and confessing faith? What if reality is much different than you have imagined it to be? But indifference 
And rejection isn't the only way to respond to the gospel. It's not the only way to wither. We can have the gospel snatched by our enemy or we can have it scorched by our losses. Over the years, I have served at a variety of, in a variety of different churches in a variety of different contexts. Yes, I've cleaned uh, toilets of those churches. I've served the, the students and the kids of those churches. I've been entrusted with responsibility that really they were very foolish to entrust to someone like me. And they, many of these have been uh, paid and unpaid positions. And yet one of the things that always, they all had in common, didn't matter what church I served in, is that there were, there were always more needs to fill. The, it could be kids ministry, the greeting team, it could be the building team. It seemed like we were almost always shorthanded. And the thing is, when things are tight like that, it's really attractive to plug in anyone, and I mean anyone, into a position that wants to serve. And I've seen this and hap- it happen in many churches over the years um, to do exactly that. If you're at least loosely committed to the church and you've got a pulse, then we'll make you a deacon if you want. I see this take place where, especially in a church that is short-handed, and yet I observed in the churches that I was in, my pastors did something very remarkable and very strange. Often, guests and newcomers would come to the service, and they would say how excited they were to be a part of that church, how much it had come to mean to them, mention all the ways that they had served, with, uh, served in their previous church, all the experience and skills that they came with, and ask how they could plug in Really, a, a dream scenario, and I, this is all within a couple weeks of them being at the church. And yet my pastors would almost always respond a certain way. Tell you what, I'm so glad that you're here, but my advice to you is, let's just stick around for a while. Worship with us, grow with us, get to know us, let us get to know you, and then in a couple months, I would love to, to circle back. Why in the world would a a church so desperate for help turn it aside when it made itself available? Is it being picky? Are they just being cynical? Hardly, actually. It's simply simply that my pastors were reading passages like the one we are in, which warned them that not all that appears to be growth, even quick growth, is genuine growth. And you know what? Sure enough, within a few weeks, many of these individuals who seemed at once so fired up for the church dropped off entirely, never to return. Looking back at our parable, Jesus says the uh, second place where the the seed fell is in rocky soil. And unlike the seed that fell on the path, it gains root. It, it, It springs up and immediately shows signs of growth. But what it What is hidden about that soil is underneath, rocks are preventing from the roots from going very deep, and deep as they would need to be to survive the elements. And sure enough, quick growth is just as quickly scorched by the severe Middle Eastern sun. Jesus' point here is that there are some, even many, who are initially all in with Jesus. They're sold. They've bought the t-shirt. But then the circumstances of their life get difficult, or they stay difficult, sometimes even more difficult than when they first became a Christian. And sometimes they stick it out, sometimes for years, sometimes for decades. But then it just seems that one more piece of bad news or an embarrassing failure or a tough loss leaves them wondering 
why they found Jesus to be exciting in the first place. Can we just be honest with each other for a second? In the coming years, I fear we're going to see a lot more of this than we ever have before. Cultural circumstances are changing. And even while it costs us far less than Christians around the world, it is growing more costly to live and speak as a public Christian than ever before. Friends, I pray that this doesn't include many of you, but still I fear we're going to see many whose growth at first seemed so genuine still fall away. Let me ask you, is, has your faith, faith in Jesus ever cost you? You know, Twitter battles and political debates don't count, by the way. Are you prepared for your faith to cost you? Friends, it's often in the deepest losses that we face that we face really who we are, that our faith is really revealed for what it actually is, and it's only a matter of time before the scorching sun catches all of us, and will it wither us too? Again, not all it appears to be growth, even quick growth, is genuine growth. But still, there is another way to wither, still one more. Sometimes the gospel is not snatched by the enemy or scorched by the sun, but choked by our winds. Not snatched by the enemy or scorched by our losses, but choked by our winds. I remember a conversation I had a while ago with a woman in a church I served as pastor who for years was estranged from her son and her grandkids. Many of you know what this is like, and it broke her heart that she was not able to see her uh, grandkids very often. Every few months, I would call and encourage her, and we'd spend time praying together that God would finally bring reconciliation. At one point, though, she stopped attending worship services entirely and stopped responding to those pursuing her until I finally caught her on the phone, and I was just as surprised as anyone and on the phone, I, I said it's something along the lines of, you know, I'm so glad I caught you. How are you? We've missed you. Everything okay? And sheepishly, she responded, yes, pastor, actually, uh, things couldn't be better. My son and I were on the mend, and I have been able to spend much more time with my grandkids. I cannot believe it. Thank you so much for praying. But as it turns out, the, the only days that work best for them to hang out turn out to be Sundays, so you're probably not going to see me for some time. But again, thank you so much for praying. You ever heard the phrase, be careful what you wish for, you just might get it? Again, some wither because of suffering, whether that suffering it's the kind of suffering that just comes with being a human being, or the kind of suffering that comes with being a Christian, some wither because of a loss, and still others wither because of a win. The third soil that Jesus describes isn't hard-packed and picked over. It isn't rocky and sunburnt. No, in many ways, this soil appears perfectly fine for a young plant to grow, but the, on the only thing is it's not the only thing growing in this soil, is it? In fact, beside this seed grow up a variety of thorns and thistles which entangle themselves around the young plant, choking out what life and fruit it might have had. Any gardeners out here? Ask about farmers. Any gardeners? Okay, so I, I know, Mike, I've been over to your garden several times. Why is it that the things that uh, we so want to grow and struggle to keep growing struggle to grow? And why is it that the very things we don't want to grow, like weeds, grow without any problem? 
Again, the seed here is the gospel itself, which is when rooted and flourishing brings life and it brings real transformation. What, what kind of thorns then could Jesus be talking about? The kind of thorns that could, as he puts it, choke out the word. Well, he tells us actually in verse 19, it doesn't leave us guessing. He says, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things. In other words, All it takes for the word to be choked out in our lives is for something to steal our attention, our praise, our worship from Christ. For something to become more attractive to us than Jesus himself. Jesus, of course, uses the example of money. But really, it can be anything we deem necessary for a good life. It can be a career we need to make. Uh, relationship we need to have, a school we need to get into, a retirement figure we need to reach, or a dream we need to achieve. Without even thinking about it, it turns out, we flood this thing, this ultimate thing, with affection, with anxiety, with energy, and attention. You know, a variety of things can become ultimate things for us. And the thing is, we don't even need to catch what we are chasing for it already to be stealing our life away. All it takes is for God to become a means to some other end, for something to become more attractive to us than Jesus himself. But let me give you another really practical example. Again, it probably goes without saying, but this election really has brought the worst out of us as a culture, even among Christians. It's as if some of us have bound all of our hopes up with a particular candidate or party, So much so, we've made someone out to be our hero who has no business being our hero, defending sometimes indefensible actions and statements from the candidates that are on your team while demonizing those who are on the other team. For some of us, politics is a real weed, I have to tell you, choking out our affection for and loyalty to Jesus as our only king. I'm not saying that the issues don't matter, that we shouldn't have real, substantive conversations about the issues. The stakes are significant. And I'm certainly not telling you to give up on the process, but no candidate, friends, should be our hero, our hope for salvation. All of them, every single one, is broken. We've got one hero, friends, and that's Christ. If we cannot see the brokenness in whoever we're supporting, we might be worshiping someone other than Jesus. Oh, and I have to tell, us some of, tell you some of the ways that some of us are posting on social media or speaking with those who are on the other side is creating real barriers to the gospel, leaving many to wonder who it is we really worship. Some of us are watering the very thorns that are choking out another's faith. Guess what, friends, whether this election goes your way or not, Jesus, not Trump, not Biden, not anyone else, Jesus occupies his throne. Don't fight as if this is your only chance at finding redemption. That has already been accomplished for you. Don't rejoice as if the world's hope has finally come. We are still a desperate mess until Jesus returns. Snatched by our enemy, scorched by our losses, or choked out by our winds. Three ways to wither. But let's look finally at those who thrive. Those who thrive. Now, at this point in Jesus' parable, we sh- here's what we should be wondering. Does anyone respond to Jesus well? 
Really, that, as we're going, we should say, well, is this going to land in any good soil? After all, look at what all three have in common. All three hear the word. It's not that the gospel hasn't been given to them. It's that has, it has either bounced off, been burnt up, or been choked out. And when it comes down to it, the reason that the seed doesn't bear fruit, let's just put it very clearly, isn't because the seed wasn't working hard enough. It's because of the seed hasn't landed in the right soil. To put this differently, the reason the gospel does not bear fruit is because it doesn't land in the right kind of heart. Well, who then has this right kind of heart? After all, I hope none of us want to find ourselves in the first three categories, do we? How do we know if we have the right heart? Again, every time an election like this comes around, do you notice on the news, uh, news programs and social scientists try to predict how everyone is going to vote based not so much on where they stand on a given issue, but by how old you are, by how much education you have, by what ethnicity you are, whether you are from a rural or urban community, how much money you make. And it's remarkable just actually how accurately you can predict voting patterns along these lines. After all, do you suspect that a young college student in downtown Portland is going to vote the same way as a retired farmer in Missouri? Probably not. But then when it comes to faith in Jesus, and I'm not just talking about whether you call yourself a Christian, but, whether, but, but real, commit, committed alignment with Jesus, it's impossible to predict faith in Jesus along these same kind of lines. In fact, Faith in Jesus seems to disrespect our best predictions. It is impossible to forecast on the front end of someone's life. Tell you what, this should be remarkably encouraging to those of us who consider ourselves to be hopeless cases. You see, Christianity isn't a matter of simply being more moral or intelligent than the next person in line. Many non-Christians are very moral, and many of them are way more intelligent than me, although that's not very hard. Many non-Christians, again, are the, most kindest, are the kindest and most wonderful people that you will meet. I mean, who told you that they wouldn't be? But Christianity, because Christianity isn't just a matter of cracking a code. When it comes down to it, the reason a Christian puts their faith in Jesus according to Jesus is because, well, because of Jesus. Read verses 11 through 12 with me. And he said to them, to you, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. I have two things I want to point out here about these verses. First, did you notice that Jesus separates people into those inside and those outside? Neither Jesus nor the rest of the Bible assumes that everyone is seeking God in their own way and eventually will find him. Rather, Jesus assumes that there will be a final separation between those who experience and are welcomed into God's love and to his kingdom and those who are not. Unlike many teachers in Israel, however, Jesus does not separate those who would belong to him and experience his kingdom, he doesn't separate them along moral or religious or even ethnic lines, as was common. Instead, he separates the human race in terms of their response to him. Are they confused by him? Do they cast him aside? Do they fall away? Or 
Do they hear, accept what he has said, and what he says about the reality of our sin, that we really are worse off than we've ever dared admit, and only through him can we be loved more than we ever dared hope, through his death upon a cross and by his resurrection from the grave? Do we actually accept that good news and then walk in step with it, bearing fruit? In other words, is our faith in him or is it not? Again, there are many ways to fall, many ways to wither, but there really is only one way to thrive, through faith in Jesus Christ. The second thing I want to point out from verse 11 and 12 has to do with the quote, though, in verse 12. Jesus here is quoting the prophet Isaiah. And what both Isaiah and Jesus seem to say is that faith itself is a gift from God. Ephesians 2 is going to say something similar, if we can put that on the screen. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. According to this verse, what is the gift of God? Closer you look at the original language, it is saying what the whole package is. Not just the salvation, but the faith that made it possible. I realize this may surface quite a few questions that we don't have time to answer here. In fact, this surfaces one of the greatest tensions in the Bible, the tension between divine sovereignty, the fact that God is in charge of all things, and human responsibility, that we are held accountable for our actions and for our desires. To put this clearly, the Bible holds us accountable for our unbelief, and when we reject God, the choice is a genuine one. We reject God because when it comes down to it, we don't want God. And sometimes God confirms us in it, hardens us in it, and in that very unbelief. But then the scriptures also say that with passages like this one, that faith can only come through the Lord. If eyes are opened, it's because Jesus has opened them. And God is gracious in opening those eyes just as he is just in closing them. Read John chapter 9 verse 39 with me. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. This, of course, does not answer all of our questions, particularly for Western Americans who prize individualism, who want to be masters of their own destiny. And let me just say that many of our questions Christians have been talking about since the moment that these words were first spoken and written, and here, but here is where we must be very clear. Why does this matter? What response does Jesus want us to have to these realities? Four things, I think. We must hear this first as a sobering warning. Just because, according to the Bible, that we, uh, yeah, according to what Jesus is saying, just because we have always imagined ourselves to be a Christian doesn't mean that we are one. The mark of faith is ongoing faith. It doesn't mean that we won't ever struggle with doubt or discouragement or with sin. Hardly, if that, if that were the case, I should just resign right now. But a Christian who is persistently cold to the gospel, hopelessly embittered in their own suffering or utterly controlled by the desire for other things may not be a Christian at all. Second, this should, we should hear this passage as a wonderful assurance. Friends, there are no hopeless cases when it comes to God outsiders actually can become insiders. And so, friend, if you desire him, if you want him, if, you're, if you want to, to place your faith in Jesus Christ, guess what? That, guess where that faith, that desire comes from? 
It comes from God himself. Follow it. Cast your, put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Don't, don't think of every reason why God shouldn't invite you in. Don't waste one moment of your life fearing that he might cast you out. If you come to him in faith, because that faith is from him in the first place, he will never turn you away. God saves hopeless cases all the time. Who of us are among them? That's every one of us, including me. And your, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you never need to fear being on the outside. Third, though, this, we should hear this passage as a certain promise. I want us to notice what Jesus says about the fruit the good soil produces. Best as scholars are able to tell, a good harvest would be something like a three or fourfold, meaning how many grains you cast out versus how many grains you get back. Three or fourfold. Well, compare that to what the fruit of this is. What is it? 30, 60, 100-fold. Here's the point. Friends, this is a remarkable harvest, and even as it gets more costly to be a public Christian, Jesus is not in a losing battle. Jesus is not on the wrong side of history. Jesus is not wringing his hands, wondering, hoping, will someone finally believe in me? The gospel will bear fruit, and if you are a Christian, you are proof of it. Walk with your head held high even as circumstances change. He is for you, and he will win. If this is true, there really is no place for arrogance, no place for despair, no place for self-reliance. And fourth, we should hear this passage as a great commission. Let me ask you, who is the sower in this parable? Well, at first, it's Jesus. We have to say that if Jesus had not first announced the good news of the gospel, no one would be a Christian. But then if you are a Christian here today, you know why you are one? Because someone announced the gospel to you. Because someone sowed the gospel into your life. Because Jesus not only saves us, he makes us useful to himself. He gives us a job. He makes us sowers too. We have the privilege of carrying on this commission as Paul puts it in Romans 10, verse 14, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe of him, in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? I know some of you are scared out of your mind if you're honest to share the gospel. You're convinced that you might bungle it all up and you're, or you're convinced that your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, they, they couldn't possibly take these things seriously. But if these things are are true. God has not gotten the address wrong. If he can save you, let's just be honest, he can save anyone. If this is true, just like this farmer, you can sow the gospel liberally, generously, searching to, uh, refusing to treat anyone as a hopeless case. Of course, somebody's going to reject you along the way. Of course, some will fall away. But you have the privilege of announcing the gospel as long as you have breath in your lungs because you believe, if you believe deep down in your, your lungs that God is the one who saves, then you get to explore. Is it, is it them? Will you save them? Is it this person that I've given up on my whole life? What if you're not done here yet? Do you want to see God show off in your life? Do you want to be made useful to him, even in this season? Even if you think you're, if you're, this season is a waste, it's not. God has not wasted. If you've give, he's given you another day on this earth. It is for one purpose. It is to bring glory to God by making disciples. Do you want to thrive? Friend, if you do, remind yourself of just how ridiculous, how miraculous, how glorious this good news of the gospel is until it quiets your fears and instills you with supernatural creativity and courage. 
Drink at the well of the gospel itself and watch as your prayers and your priorities begin to change naturally. Friends, even this morning, I have to just say, as the gospel, as, as this church is all about the gospel, how is it landing? Do you want to thrive? Would you pray with me? Lord, we, um, we come to you as those who, apart from your intervening grace, we would not respond right well. We would all fall away. And yet in your mercy, you've chosen to save. You've chosen to open up the eyes of the blind. And in your wisdom, you've chosen to hide it from the ones who think that they have it all figured out. God, you, you've removed any reason for boasting. And so for Christians here, would we be so humbled to be yours? And would we be so caught off guard to be loved by you, so, so encouraged and set free by the gospel that we would want to pass it on? And for those of us who, again, may not be Christians or wonder, again, if, if our faith really has been in the cross, would we not examine our behaviors? We turn and look upon him, turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full on his wonderful face. Would our faith be in him for the forgiveness of our sins and we ask him for newfound strength to thrive and bear fruit? You are our only hope. And we know that you, the story is not over. You will win. Your gospel will produce disciples. And we want to be a part of that great harvest. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.